Good morning. <clears throat> so if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, uh, trying somewhat consistently, like I've mentioned before, to be going through this letter and to work our way into uh, potentially 2 Timothy, but definitely Titus eventually. And um, some of these things are going to be reiterated, because um, I plan on uh, teaching on each of the points as they're written in the epistles. So uh, Titus is also going to talk about the subject this um, this morning, and we'll get back into it and um, have a good good sense of repetition uh, in the letter. Um, but in First Timothy chapter six, you'll turn to verses one and two. Um, I'm going to read these verses. It's just a couple verses, and um, as you'll see from even the nature of these verses, this is just going to be a very instructive and direct lesson. Um, so it's going to be very very simple. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of places that speak about this same subject as well that I think really emphasize the importance of it, and we'll look at that more in, in just a moment. But the idea of this is, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, Timothy is told to understand the church to be God's household. And he's told by Paul that what he needed to understand as an evangelist is how the church is meant to be the pillar and the ground of truth and how we can fulfill our responsibility as growing as God's children, his household. And a part of that in this letter from the beginning of chapter 5 has been disciplining ourselves to ensure that we're showing godly honor and doing that with purity. So 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Um, there's four other places where these same instructions are either reiterated or expounded on or just said a little bit differently. Um, and I think that's uh, about as many passages, if not more, than the passages in the epistles that talk about marriage. And just think in your mind how important marriage is to talk about and to give instruction on. Um, I think one of the ideas that really connects this to that sense of importance is because Jesus in Philippians 2, he took the form of a bondservant when he came into the world. You think about Mark chapter 10, uh, when Jesus said the Son of Man had, did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think there's a principle in this that sometimes there are roles that in the world have no appearance of greatness or influence or importance, but because of who we know Jesus to be and who Jesus was to us, those roles, it turns out, have actually a very special power and significance and importance. So what I want to do is I want to think about this just in the context of the direct circumstance of being a servant, but obviously the clearest connecting principle would be like the jobs that we work, right? So we'll think about that as well. But I want to look at some of these passages and what makes them unique. Go to um, Ephesians 5, just to kind of get a fuller picture of the instruction that we're looking at, or Ephesians 6, rather, 5 through 8. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. And 1 Timothy 6 will still be the main passage we'll be looking at, but again, just to kind of get a picture um, in Ephesians 6, it says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, 
but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then just turn to the uh, book of Colossians, um, just a couple books after Ephesians, um, chapter 4, or chapter 3, rather, uh, verse 22 through 25. Um, And again, you'll see that these instructions almost are reiterated in nearly the same way, but with just some slight differences. So Ephesians talked about fearing and trembling, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but working as slaves of Christ. And then Colossians 3.22 says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Um, main thing in there is he mentions doing this in sincerity and in fearing the Lord and doing work heartily and having the confidence of knowing that we're serving the Lord himself. Look at Titus chapter 2, um, the verses I was referring to at the beginning of the lesson. If, uh, Titus chapter 2, 9 and 10. It says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, if you'll turn there. Um, So Titus, one of the unique things was just the emphasis on being well-pleasing, not argumentative, to be like not talking back, not like debating things that are being instructed, or stealing or being unfaithful, but just showing all good faith. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 18 through uh, 20. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you are harshly, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So the idea of this is really trying to paint a picture. You know, like these verses, I think, kind of fill out a canvas so that we can have a clear perspective of what we're trying to look at here. You just imagine, like, you know, these Christians and these various congregations who are being written to, you imagine a servant who would at least have enough freedom to assemble with a local church, and they hear this epistle read, what kinds of things that they would have to be willing then to endure and do to be obedient to the things that were written and how that would impact their heart. So the first thing I want to think about um, back in uh, 1 Timothy 6, if you want to turn back there, I think one of the most challenging things about this, and I think in applying this principle to um, like a job or school, just whatever, um, I think if a servant was listening to this, the hardest part of all of this would be this instruction to regard your masters as worthy of all honor. Because that's not just an external thing that you do, that's something that has to change in my perspective and change in my heart first. So Matthew 7.1. It's a really popular passage, um, you know, do not judge that you not be judged. Uh, it's easy to think about that just in terms of thinking about somebody being accused of sin or convicted of something wrong they've done, you know. 
but the more that I've thought about that passage, especially in reference to these things, there's, there's more of an emptying of self completely involved in that instruction. A, a willingness really to let God's decisions reign even when, in my mind, there's a different way that it should be done or should be looked at. So what is God's judgment? His judgment is that your master, if you're a servant in this congregation hearing this letter, your servant is to be held as worthy of all honor, period. And I think the first point on the board underneath the question, we have to really get into our minds. Honor is not based on the person, but based on the Lord. It's kind of like the military um, I think we have a couple people who have been in the military. Cody's in the military right now, so you can correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. Um, but from what I understand, like in the military, with the different ranks you have in the military, you respect the rank that somebody has, and you treat them according to their rank, even if the person themselves is not necessarily worthy of the honor you're giving to the rank, right? And it's the same with like the government and instructions to honor the government. It's the same when we're honoring all people in First Peter chapter 2. Honor is not based on the person, it is based on the Lord. And what we're striving to do is let God's judgment be held true, even when a master in this circumstance would prove themselves unworthy of honor. Because the instruction is not dependent on your, your master earning your honor or proving themselves to be trustworthy or kind or gracious or merciful. The instruction is only based in the Lord himself, and that's all. And the second part of this is, I think one thing we need to appreciate about this, the less worthy that one is to re receive this honor, the more God's grace has room to be glorified. Just kind of picture the scene. First Peter 2 talked about, you know, not only honoring those who are good and gentle, which would be a lot easier, but actually those who are also cruel and unreasonable and harsh. Imagine you have a bunch of servants for this one unreasonable and harsh master who are all miserable and they gossip and complain about their master. They slander him behind his back. They're not motivated to do their work. But just imagine at the beginning of all of this, the kind of impact this one servant could have, who in the midst of all of this is the only one working hard, holding his tongue when he could gossip or complain, honoring his master with his words, protecting his reputation, quickly submitting to instruction, gladly yielding on matters that are uncomfortable. like. What kind of impact do you think that servant holding their master in honor would have on that environment? And how do you think the master would be impacted by a servant like that, right? So next thing about this, with God's judgment changing our hearts, I think there's some specific ways that God's judgment in this matter changes our perspective. I think the first thing is it unites us with his goals to glorify him and save the lost. Uh, Turn to First um, Peter 2. Um, there's a lot of things that surround the instruction in First Peter 2 that I want to just anchor ourselves down on for these, um, these three points here. Um, but the thing is, giving honor to somebody harsh or unreasonable will inevitably result in more difficulty or burden being placed on you. And I think it's important for those of you who were here last week, we studied 2 Kings 3. And that's where the king of Israel, Judah, and Edom went out against the king of Moab and they marched seven days and they ran out of water and material and they were basically going to die and be defeated. 
But then Elisha told the people that they needed to dig trenches in the wilderness and that God was going to fill these trenches with, with water without any rain or anything like that. So there, there, there is a sense where God's instructions do test our faith because a lot of times God will tell us to do things or command us to go in a direction where at the first it will seem like God's instruction is making my condition worse. So to give you an example of this, I've talked a lot about my time at UPS. Um, just to be frank, it was an extremely difficult job. And my boss in Alabama and Birmingham um, was harsh and he was unreasonable, um, like 1 Peter 2 says. And here's what I noticed. When I would actually make some attempt in whatever weakness God allowed to obey him and try to serve him quietly, he would put so many things on me and on nobody else that it was like utterly overwhelming and way beyond my capacity. And what my coworkers would do to make sure that he understood that they had their limits, they would talk back to him, they would swear at him, they would scream at him. So he like had a really clear distinction, okay, so I have these boundaries with these guys and there's only so much I can do. Well, so if you're not gonna talk back, swear at him or yell, well, it's like you have free reign then, all this stuff you're not putting on them, you put on the one person. And things were so overwhelming at that job. Sometimes I would literally go back to my apartment after the, the workday, and I would literally break down and cry. Just imagine like a grown man going home and crying after a day at work. But look at verse 19. This is really important. The guarantee is yes, this will in some ways, yes, it will make your life harder. And that's just reality. But look at this. For this sign finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrow and suffering unjustly. And then look at verse 21. Let's read this as well. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continuously straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. That's going to serve as the template for the next points here. But think about what was Jesus' goal in his suffering. And I'll suggest to you that any commandment we follow, especially toward the lost, when we humble ourselves to be willing to specifically obey God's commands through our work week. And when these things are in our hearts and in our minds, they will progressively change our view, our desire, and just our will for what it is we're doing and, and why we're doing what we're doing. Jesus' goal was to glorify the Father and save the lost. And because Jesus was submissive and obedient to the will of the Father, that was his joy. And there's a way in which reflecting on Jesus in times of suffering according to God's will is able, even in the midst of this suffering that was just referred to in verse 19, even in the midst of this suffering, God is able to protect and undergird that suffering with unspeakable joy. Go back to chapter 1. <clears throat> and look at verse, um, uh, verse 7 through 9. Um, I'm sorry, let's look at verse 6 through 9. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So this is like digging those trenches in 2 Kings 3. They dug the trenches while thirsty and tired with the hope of a promise that those trenches were going to be filled with water when they were done. And another brother referred to it this way. What he told me recently is, when he trusts in God's promises and really like puts himself at the feet of things that God has said, he notices that there's many times where him and his family would be at a point of basically financial collapse. <laughs> but he would pray to God and, and really just talk to God and tell him, unless you fulfill your part, like, I'm going up in flames. And he would balance this by assuring me that whenever he trusted in God's promise, he always noticed that God never failed. And the joy and the liberty and the security that he's found remaining in that place is this unspeakable joy that he expressed to me. So I think it changes our hearts not just to be united with God's goals, but also to be humbled by the joy that we've received as well. Another thing back in um, chapter 2, 21 through 25, it really urges us to fixate on that hope of chapter 1, but on Jesus' example. When we suffer according to God's will, when we submit quietly and we're taken advantage of or we're trampled on for striving to put ourselves in a vulnerable position, it really pushes us, I think, to recognize the honor that we've received and how we've received honor unduly from trampling on the Lord himself first. And there's a very special sense of comfort and confidence when I'm suffering from others unjustly and I recognize that I have caused Jesus to suffer unjustly. And there's something just very reassuring that in the place of that sorrow gives enough confidence to just press on. And God is able to give new strength. And that that confidence and reassurance extends beyond just the moment of assurance that really develops, I think, a deep and abiding sense of faith in God and trust in his judgment. Um, so that's the second thing, is it pushes us to recognize hope and grace in ways we've received those things that pushes us to have assurance to continue on. But look at um, verse 20, uh, 23 the end of the verse. So I want to go to chapter 4 to look at a similarity there in chapter 4, but it mentions that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Suffering for God's will and accepting his judgment, even when it immediately results in suffering, it humbles us to cling to Jesus and God's promises and his justice. Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Look at chapter 4. Uh, we won't read this whole section, but in verse 13, it's talking about how those who suffer according to the will of God can rejoice as they're suffering in a way that's connecting them to Jesus. But look at verse 17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That is the same thing said about what Jesus did in chapter 2. Entrusting the soul to him who's faithful. 
think one of the reasons why sometimes I struggle to be eager for God's judgment or even like desire for God to judge wickedness and the wicked and to win and have victory. And the reason why I don't just put myself at Jesus' feet with eagerness and resolve is because I'm not allowing myself to suffer the oppression that's just inherent within the existence we're living in. And so God's judgment doesn't seem like a very appealing thing to me, right? And I think that's the beautiful thing about a servant to their master. If they had a harsh and cruel master, it would force them to be humbled to cling to God's promise of judgment and to see him as a faithful creator in a way that would cause them to continue to do what is right. We're not working to be rewarded presently or to be recognized by the people around us in the world. We are laboring because of our hope in things that aren't tangible, in ways where we desire to grab hold of those things with a greater sense of trust and faith and and to see them as more real every single day than the day before when we were laboring for the Lord. So these things humble us to cling to Jesus and God's promises, not just these specific commands, but this is just a reality, I think, of God's judgment in general. When we empty ourselves of our own sense of justice and judgment and we let God's word be held true. So the last part of this lesson, those were some principles kind of behind the curtain. And the, the rest of the lesson will just be very practically, how can we adorn God's name? So 1 Timothy 6 again, uh, at the end of verse 1, it says that all these things we do so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. And so our, our, our mission and ambition really becomes how can we make sure that God's name is being beautified? Revelation 21.2 uses the same word for adorn. Uh, talks about the bride coming out of heaven, the new Jerusalem being adorned for her husband. So you think about like, you know, a woman who, you know, is at her wedding. And a lot of times there's wedding pictures that get taken while, while the bride is like getting jewelry put on, getting her hair done, because of this very beautiful process of adorning her to just look magnificent for that special day. Think about like trees that get decorated for holidays, buildings that get decorated for holidays. It's the idea of making something that may already be beautiful itself, adding something onto it to draw even more attention to that existing beauty or adding something onto it to make it even more appealing and more beautiful and to bring even more attention to its beauty, right? So that's what we're striving to do, is to beautify the name of God and the doctrine. So how do we do that? One thing with Colossians and Ephesians particularly, basing our work work ethic in the knowledge of Jesus and not in our environment. I think a question that maybe you can ask yourself is what motivates you to work hard? At UPS, like, when nobody was looking or when things slowed down a little bit, people would generally find any excuse to be lazy. And generally, if somebody wasn't breathing down your neck, like, you're just not really going to be working very hard. And nobody's really trying to go the extra mile. It's just kind of get through the day, get it done, let's go home. We don't want to stay here a second longer than we need to. But that's not the case for us who are working for the Lord first thing I think that we have to do when we're thinking about taking these principles and applying them, we cannot base our work ethic in our environment. We can't base our work ethic in how hard people are working around us or how much our bosses are pushing us. 
we base our work ethic in wanting to please Jesus and being motivated by that, right? So, very simple, but the next point. Submit and obey quickly. Um, I had employees at UPS when I was a supervisor. I would give them an instruction, and they would question me or talk back, and I would tell them that I was going to write them up for, um, oh, I can't remember the word, insubordination, basically, because uh, it was very important that, like, with how fast things had to happen, that, like, there no be no talking back, just do what I say, right? But oftentimes they would say, I'm not talking back to you, because in their mind it's like, well, I'm just trying to have a conversation about it, but they missed the fact that I was giving them a command, <laughs> and there was no conversation that needed to happen, right? So I think sometimes it can be easy to overlook that we're actually backbiting our supervisors or bosses when we don't even realize it. So we've got to be willing to submit and submit quickly and quietly. This is true of so many roles, not just of servants to their masters. You think about in marriage, a husband submitting to their wife or a wife to their husband, that willingness to just, as soon as something is said, no argument, no questioning, if I can yield to this, I'll do it. And especially for servants, Colossians and Ephesians emphasize be obedient in all things. A caveat, doing that as much as possible, but from my experience again, I had a boss that would put way too much on me to the point where I was working well past my set hours, and he was trying to like change my hours in the system so that it didn't look like I was working as many hours as I did, which was illegal. So at some point I had to set boundaries, right, just for legality's sake. But it was difficult because I didn't want to set boundaries like aggressively or like talking back to him. So I get the fact that sometimes we can't submit because we aren't really actual slaves. Like we go home to our families and we can quit our jobs if we really want to. So there is a sense where we need to at some points really be honest with other things that are priorities outside of work and that doesn't constitute what our life is but if that needs to be done if we do it gently and humbly we make sure that everything is being done in a spirit of gentleness not out of aggression or impatience not out of anger not not in a sharp way but just speaking with gentleness and just being clear and being frank while still maintaining the spirit of Christ Um, next point being thankful when others are not and never complaining. Um, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I don't know about your work environments, but basically I had a really hard time connecting with people at UPS a lot of times because everybody complained all the time. And like whenever anybody talked, it was gossip and complaining, and like that's it. So I had to try to like create new conversations. Otherwise, I, didn't, I literally did not understand how to talk to people at UPS because that was always the conversation. And there were times where I got caught up into it without really recognizing, you know, with enough um, awareness and sobriety what was happening. So you just have to be careful to recognize the danger of the environments we're in and being holy in those environments. Look at Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Think about this. When he says holding fast the word of life, I know that generally would mean like all of God's words, 
But what if you could specifically apply that in this context to your work? That you're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and there are things that you really need to hold on to in your environment and remember and humble yourself to keep even when everything around you is pushing against that. And back to the beginning of verse 14. Do you ever get caught in the midst of grumbling and complaining in your work environment? I'll tell you one thing that sometimes caught me off guard. I would sometimes do something for my boss or my boss would say something to me. There would be times where he would swear at me. And one of my close coworkers would like nudge me on the shoulder and then start gossiping about him. Like, <laughs> that guy, right? And it was easy to just react and agree. And then all of a sudden, as soon as you give any indication that you agree, it just begins to explode into a bigger conversation, right? Um, so one of the ways I think to really combat against that is being thankful. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse uh, 18. Um, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter uh, 4. Colossians chapter 4, um, verse 5 and 6. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, 5 and 6. Um, it says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Um, I think with grace is the idea of showing honor, but also gratitude. Um, there's a lot of things that we can be thankful for that just being in an environment of complaining and gossiping and grumbling can easily put out of your mind just how many blessings we have just being able to work a job. How much of a blessing it is to be able to get an income, even to be able to suffer at a job and have to work through the difficulty of being in, a, in an environment that really tests you and tests your patience. You can even be thankful for that. You can be thankful for the person who is in authority over you, even if, again, they don't deserve any honor. You can be thankful for the ability you have to get to your job. You can be thankful for the ability you have to do your job. There are so many things to be thankful for. And what I've noticed is expressing gratitude when nobody else is, is a powerful way to people, for people to be interested in the hope of the gospel. Because people ultimately recognize that they're miserable. <laughs> And if you're able to convey that in a miserable environment that you still have joy, there is something substantial in that that will be recognized. Um, so being thankful when others are not and never complaining. With that, protecting your boss's name and reputation. I really struggled with this and failed at this a lot. Um, and this is mainly from other people bringing this up when I would talk about my work. But Brethren helped me to realize that I needed to do better when people were gossiping about my boss or other employees to at least make an effort to stop those conversations or speak well of my boss when people were maligning him. Uh, that was really awkward when I attempted to do that. But I think, again, it gets back to verse 6 of Colossians 4. We're always trying to speak with grace as though seasoned with salt. And I think one thing that God's judgment helps with is not feeling like we have some inherent right to be treated a certain way. If I'm willing to be treated with hostility and harshness and unfairly, then I can freely give honor with joy even when I'm not receiving anything that warrants that kind of response. 
In 1 Timothy 6, verse 2, it mentions serving brethren all the more and not being um, upset when things don't uh, go ideally when a brother is your master. I think the idea within verse 2 of 1 Timothy 6 is having a brother as a master, you could maybe expect maybe favors or better treatment or exemption from certain responsibilities because this brother now is going to recognize that you are a special slave compared to everybody else. And I think what Paul is trying to enforce with Timothy is a servant, even of a believing master, should have no expectation of special treatment, but should serve him all the more, even if it continues to be difficult, even in that kind of environment. Um, Last thing, humbling ourselves and being willing to apologize when we sin or fail our responsibilities. I think this is one of the most important components of honor that is easy to overlook or not even think about. Um, When I worked at UPS, I did lose my temper sometimes. Um, I actually talked back to my boss on one distinct occasion that I remember very distinctly publicly, and it was over the radio so everybody could hear it. And one of the blessings of what God did in those situations is it gave me an opportunity to at least humble myself and apologize and talk to my coworkers about why that was important to me to apologize. Um, I don't think I ever in all my years working in companies really ever saw anybody truly humble themselves and apologize like God expects for anything that they've ever done. Um, I worked in an environment in Birmingham particularly where everybody went to church. Everybody was a Christian. Everybody swore. Everybody complained. Everybody talked back. So really, ultimately, the faith that was in them, to me, as an observer, it made God look like a big joke. And I would have had no interest in knowing this God who had done so little to transform anybody. I think something that was difficult for me is I can show godliness in my environment without doing everything perfectly. I really struggled with feeling like if I don't do all my paperwork flawlessly, if I don't complete all my tasks in a way that is absolutely pristine, if my boss is not absolutely pleased with my performance every day, that I was disappointing God. And that messed with me bad. That was one of the reasons why I would break down and cry after a work day, is because I would feel like my boss was not pleased with these impossible tasks he's putting on me. I could not do it all, so I'm being set up to basically fail God, is how I felt. And I think, really, it, it's so helpful to understand that serving God and being a servant to people in the world, God is not expecting absolute flawless performance. What God is just expecting us to do is to humble ourselves and just honor people. And as much as that causes us to struggle, even when we fail, we can please God when we're willing to take the opportunity to put ourselves low and to bring others high and magnify God in demonstrating to the world that we truly, sincerely want to please God. Even when that means that our image has to be brought lower for his image to be magnified. So... That's where we'll end the lesson for this, uh, this morning. Um, I hope something in that could be helpful to you, um, just serving in whatever capacity uh, you're in, in your environment, whether it be school, work, whether it's in your household with parents.
Whatever it is, God has equipped us to fully please him wherever we are, but he's also equipped us to know Jesus in very special and unique ways in the situations that we're in if we'll listen to his word and submit ourselves to his instructions. It is so beautiful. It is just so humbling. The things that God can do in our hearts when we let ourselves follow his lead. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I know the idea of like honoring people who are harsh is not the most appealing invitation, but the invitation really is to see the way that you are being honored first by God, who is higher than we can ever imagine, who has more authority than we could ever perceive, who has more apparent glory in appearance than we could ever imagine. This God has allowed his son to be trampled and to be crucified, to be able to give us undue honor that all of us here who are Christians are still struggling to just fundamentally appreciate and understand. If there's anything we can do for you at this time, anything that needs to be made known, bring it forward while we stand and sing. Amen.